0: What is up everybody and welcome back to Music Madness. This is your guy Kent. Uh, we're going to chat through our Sweet 16 matchup this week um, and I'm pretty excited about this. We're going to get through some results. We're going to chat about some music um, and after this week we'll be down to our Elite 8 um, this week we're going to do something I haven't done a lot of up to this point. I've always talked around music, but this week we're going to just pretty much talk explicitly about the music that these artists created. Which is uh, feels a little over over um, overdue. Um, so we've done a lot of history and hopefully you've enjoyed that part. But this is going to be really my history about these songs and the favorite songs from these artists. I'm hoping to hear from you what your favorites are and why. They aren't going to be the best songs necessarily. They're just going to be the ones I liked for a certain reason or another, and we'll chat through what those are. I will say I know some of these artists better than others, um, so may not have as many insights as some of you all do on it, but I'll do my best. So that's where you know the conversation kind of comes in on Discord or uh, social media. Now, I wish I could play these songs on the podcast, but I think I've talked about this before. I don't have a musical distribution license, and they're really expensive. I'm not willing to pay for one at, up to this point, so I can't play the music. It is what it is. I am going to make a special Spotify playlist for these songs that are mentioned on this playlist. So there's going to be three for each artist. So we have the the 16 left, so it'll be like 48 songs or something that are on there. I suggest having it open as we go along so you can listen to the songs at the same time and can kind of hear what we're talking about on the pod today. So let's kick it off today with the health reasons bracket. For our first match, we have five seed Karen Carpenter taking on the number one seed in the bracket, John Bottom from Led Zeppelin. So right off the bat, we're going to go into a band that I'm not as familiar with, with the Carpenters. Not only is this not my exact style of music, but it was a long time ago for me, so it's not one that I know all that well. But, you know, we'll we'll do what we can. I found some songs to talk about. I'm going to start off with their remake of a song called Please, Mr. Postman. So... Uh, my wife, she will sing this song for no apparent reason, just out of the blue. She'll just start singing, Hey, hey, Mr. Postman. I'm like, Where'd that come from? Uh, we've been married for almost 20 years, and she's done it since we were dating. Um, so this one kind of made me smile seeing it on the list. It's a cheesy remake of a cheesy song, first done by a group called the Marvelettes in 1961. It was redone by the Beatles in 63. It was a number one hit. With the Marvelettes, then it went to number one with the Carpenters as well in 1975. It's just a catchy pop tune. The song itself was actually number 331 on the Rolling Stones list of the top 500 songs of all time. So, you know, it, it's still a, it's a pretty high, highly regarded song, so you can't really mess with a classic. It's funny to learn about how many songs are remakes or who made the original. Everyone knows the song Superstar. But I honestly know know the Luther Vandross version of the song better. But I guess the Carpenters are where it first became popular. However, they didn't write it either. It was a remake of a song by a group called Bonnie Bramlett and Leon Russell. Um, Needless to say, it didn't take off. Uh, Funny enough, the song is about rock groupies from the 60s. It did all right for them, but the Carpenters took the song to number two on the charts. And was on the charts for 21 weeks, which is the longest of any of their songs. Um, this was off their third album, simply called, the Carp- called Carpenters. And this song has been remade or sampled uh, a ton of different times by a number of artists across a bunch of different genres. So they really kind of took it to the n- next level. Um, here's a list of the artists that I found that have used it. Joe Cocker, Luther Vandross, Cher, Sonic Youth, Bette Midler, Usher, My Chemical Romance. Uh, Just a a crazy list of artists that have sampled that song in some way, shape, or form. And finally, I'm going with Goodbye to Love. This song was written by Richard for their fourth album, A Song for You, and just really shows off Karen's voice and the melancholy tone of it. I really like the musical arrangement on it as well and the guitar. It's probably because it's their most rock song, and that's interesting because it doesn't start out that way. I saw someone online describe it as a power ballad, and I, that that really fits, because that wasn't a really t- a type of song at this point, and it became really popular soon afterwards, and they may have uh, kind of helped originate it. The use of distortion was just so unique for a Carpenter song as well, and it was really welcome. It was, a, it was a different way of approaching it, and probably why I like it. It starts out like so many other songs with Karen just singing over some nice melody, and then as you get to the hard guitar at the end, it just makes it pretty memorable. It did peak at number 7 on the charts in 72, and I think I liked it because it's just so different than some of their other stuff and really shows their range. So now on to a band that uh, I know pretty well. So I went from having it be difficult to pick a Carpenter song because I didn't know a ton of them to picking a Zeppelin song, because, which is almost impossible because I love so many of their songs. So what I'm going to really try and focus on here is songs that Bonham really shone on in his drumming. Um, the band makes so many of their songs great, but which ones really stood out for him? It's hard because Jimmy Page is such an amazing guitar player, he often steals the spotlight in a lot of their songs. So it's, it's one of the problems of this band having some of the greatest musicians of all time um, being on it. So I spent some time reading articles on his best drum solos, There are a number of amazing ones out there, including like Moby Dick, When the Levee Breaks, and Achilles' Last Stand. If you really want to just go drums, go listen to those. Um, I'm going to try and think of some of their songs that were huge that wouldn't have been the same without him on percussion. First one for me is Fool in the Rain. It's from their last album, In Through the Outdoor. Just listen to the percussion on this song. Any other drummer would be offbeat. Uh, but somehow he's just perfect. It, and it sounds almost like he's offbeat, but he's not. Um, it's just so well put together. You can just hear the different types of surfaces he's using. In the middle of a the song, they speed it up, too, and he just goes a little bit faster. It's the same exact beat that's kind of off, but it's just faster. And he just takes over. The guitar's in there, but the drum is the instrument in the song. And I could only imagine that this is like trying to sing a Whitney Houston song at karaoke uh, for anyone else trying to drum this thing just don't try it, it it's, it's impossible I read that it was uh, inspired by some samba beats that Robert Plant heard while he was at the 1978 World Cup in Argentina and any song created because of soccer I'm in I, I love soccer uh, interestingly the song was never performed live by Ve- Zeppelin Bonham died soon after it was recorded It's just six minutes of fun and kind of amazing to know that Bonham was struggling so much with alcohol at this point. Second song uh, that I picked out, uh, and I'm really drawn to, is called Diamaca. Uh, And it's, uh, so many people mispronounce this. I was reading online that you actually are supposed to produce it that way. Um, So I I know we talked about the fact, and we'll get to why in a couple seconds, so I know we talked about the fact that Zeppelin never had a number one song, but this song was their longest song on the chart, spending 16 weeks in the Hot 100, peaking at number 20. The song almost sounds like a reggae song, and that, that was intentional. And I actually wrote down the, the fact that it, was a, it sounded like a reggae song before I had read what's behind it. The name is actually a play on the way you say the word Jamaica, in an english accent um there's an old, old english joke that i read that uh robert planted said where there's an exchange between two british friends and uh he, one of the guys says my wife's gone to the west indies do Jamaica J- jamaica no she wants to go and uh bonham said it was uh really a match of a doo-wop and a beat and a reggae so it just it's it's funny because like Zeppelin seems so serious, but then you kind of read some of these things and the, oh, they actually were having quite a bit of fun putting these together. It's one of Zeppelin's few songs where all four members have a writer's credit. Um, the song wasn't all that well-liked at the time, though. And it, 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 at its initial release, people kind of said, what is this? It doesn't sound like any of their other songs. But then it kind of crawled up the charts as people became to understand it. And then finally, for me, you can't really talk about Zeppelin without talking about Cashmere from Physical Graffiti. Um, it's funny that I said Peak Zeppelin is their first four albums, and then I picked three songs from their other albums outside their final four, their th- first four. Um, so I know Cashmere really features the guitar, but just try and imagine it without the drum beat. Listen to Just Bonham, uh, he makes that song. The punctuation at just the right time drives home the guitar riffs. It's probably their most recognizable song, and I guess it took them almost three years to write that song, which is absolutely crazy that this song never charted. Um, What the heck were people listening to back then? Um, I'm a 90s kid, so I really like the Puff Daddy version of this song, too, that he remade with Jimmy Page for the Godzilla soundtrack in the 90s. It uh, it still holds up. That song didn't hold up as well as Cashmere did, um, but still, I I still put it on every once in a while because I do love that version, too. So who's moving on? It's not a huge surprise, but Bonham is through. Uh, in the battle of the drummers, you have to go with the greatest, greatest drummer of all time, and he took 72% of the vote to move through. So who's going to face him in the elite eight um our top our first off in the group is our three seed bob marley and our two seed freddie mercury of queen so let's start off with bob i mentioned on the pod but i can't talk about bobby bobby marley without talking about three little birds this song was on his 1980 album exodus I've been on a few vacations to beaches with my kids, and this song is always on, like, it multiple times. You can't hear it and not smile. There's a bit of confusion about what it was about. One of Bob's friends claims that he was there when he was writing it, and Bob said it was about these three little birds who would fly around outside his window. However, he had three backup singers throughout most of his career, and they claimed it was actually about him. It was three little, uh, about them. There's three women that sang with him. And they would say he called them his three little birds. And um, you could hear them singing actually on this song. Either way, it's just such a positive song. It brings a lot of happy memories of watching my kids play on the beach. So I love that song. Uh, second song is Get Up Stand Up from the Whalers' 1973 album Burning. I honestly forgot that this was their song. And still, I started looking into the topic a bit. But man, what an what a absolute cool song. It's totally different from Three Little Birds because it's actually a song about social commentary instead of just songs about birds. Um, it was written as a partnership with his band member, Peter Tosh. They wrote it after Marley had visited Haiti and just seen the poverty that was there. It's crazy because he wrote, grew up in a slum on Jamaica, too, but um, it must have been bad in Haiti for them to get really uh, political with this song. I read it was the last song that Marley performed before his death um as well and this song has been sampled or redone a number of times by like public enemy bruce springsteen rihanna um there are three verses in the song and bob performs the first two talking about his rastafarian religion about how god is here on earth because remember they they said that the ethiopian emperor was jesus returned uh but peter tosh sings in the third verse and it's uh, a lot more militant It's about standing up for yourself, and they're not going to give you what you wanted. It was a happy-sounding song with some powerful words. And finally, one of his biggest songs that was released after his death is Buffalo Soldier. In case you can't tell from this show, I'm a pretty big history geek. So I actually really like this song because it kind of tells a story about a group that not a lot of people know about. Um, The Buffalo Soldiers were six regiments of all-black soldiers that were organized in 1866 after the Civil War. Um, So many men had died in the Civil War that the U.S. Army was looking to rebuild, and they turned to black men who had just been freed from slavery. This gave them an opportunity to have a job. They were primarily working in the western U.S. versus Plains Indian uprisings. And interestingly, I found some information on the National Park site. Um... They actually curated a lot of the national parks west of the Mississippi during this time as well. And I didn't know that those segregated units had been used that way. I also didn't know that they remained that way segregated for almost 90 years up until the Korean War when segregation was ended and they were merged into other groups. The song celebrates those soldiers but also has kind of a rebellious air that uh, Marley had in a lot of his songs. So now on to Freddie Mercury and Queen... This one also is a little bit more difficult for me. As I said on the last pod, I'm a big Queen fan, and I listen to a lot of their songs from that Greatest Hits album. I'm honestly not a huge fan of some of their stadium songs, like We Will Rock You, We Are the Champions, and stuff like that. But I have a massive soft spot for Bohemian Rhapsody. Um, It was off their fourth album, Night at the Opera, and may have one of the most iconic music videos of all time, before music videos were even really a thing. It's just the four guys with a black background singing, each taking their turn. I read that Freddie worked on writing this song for like 15 years and piecing it together from three other songs that he had written, which is why there's so many like kind of made up words and goofy things in there was because they had three different songs that had things going on and they were like, let's just shove them together. I feel like the movie Wayne's World introduced this song to an entire generations of, generation of 80s and 90s kids. Um, I pretty much have it memorized from the, watching that movie so many times when they're in the back of the Gremlin going, Scaramouche, Scaramouche, can you do the Fandango? Uh, it, it just is hilarious and awesome at the same time. Freddie really gets to show off his full range on this song too, the highs, the lows, and the rasp on some of those songs. Where he's like, mama. Uh, it's just it's it's a fun song all the way through and has some great memories for me. Um, it has over 2 billion streams on Spotify, which uh, is just, it's a lot. <laughs> the song peaked at number 2 on the charts. It was there for 44 weeks. It's the number 17 song on Rolling Stone's top 500 songs of all time. So just a, a pure banger all the way through and through. My second Queen song is Don't Stop Me Now from their 1979 album Jazz. This song did way better in Europe than it did in the United States. It only reached number 86 in the U.S. It's kind of crazy, though, because this song has 1.6 billion streams on Spotify and wasn't even a top 50 hit in the U.S. In 2019, Billboard did an article about this song talking about how it's actually one that's become more popular almost 40 years after its release because it's been used on so many ads movies tv shows and people hear it and like it and listen to it more and more now than they did when it actually came out the song was written by Freddie, and a lot of his band members uh have said it was a totally freddy song it was during his most like uh, eccentric drugged out and promiscuous part of his life and this song was really just him saying you can't stop me um so they've said it was all him they didn't even really like it and didn't want to encourage singing it but you know, Freddie was Freddie and put it in. And finally, I really love Somebody to Love. This, again, is a Freddie song through and through, and he sh- really shows that four-octave range on this song. This is their off their fifth album, A Day at the Races. It was also written by Freddie. I swear I didn't do this on purpose, but all three of my favorite songs are Freddie songs. Um, he plays the piano to start this one off, and it, it just is its so pretty. Um, I love the way it just builds to the crescendo in the middle of the song by doing almost a chant-like build out in the middle, and then Freddie just blows it away with his falsetto. It's amazing. Um, so I was reading that uh, they wanted the song to sound like it was accompanied by a choir, but in reality, it's just layers of Freddie's voice with Brian May and Roger Taylor's voice as well. They all like, recorded singing different um, voices and layered it all together. It's so cool. Freddie was in, said he was inspired by the way Aretha Franklin sang and wanted to sound like her on this song. So who's moving on? Freddie takes 83% of the vote to take down Bob Marley. Not really even that close. And it's not a terribly big surprise. I mean, like uh, Bob was great, but he did just have the, the absolute bangers that uh, Queen did. What a crazy group. The, there's so many good songs in there. It'll be interesting to see at the end which group is kind of the best. Um, but in this group at the end, we have Zeppelin versus Queen in the Elite Eight. Arguably, arguably the greatest drummer to ever play versus the greatest front man to ever sing. It's gonna be awesome. So moving into the Freak Accident group, um, it'll be interesting to see if the songs in this group will uh, outlast the ones before. Um, our first matchup is a massive one. One seed Brian Jones from the Rolling Stone against Buddy Holly. So, starting with Jones and the Stones, all of his songs come from the Stones, but I'm going to focus only on Stone songs before he died. Um, it's pretty easy because I really like some of their songs from before he died more than the ones that came after. Um, they seemed to lose something when they went more mainstream and he left. Um... This one's a bit easier for me. Uh, My favorite Rolling Stone song is and always has been Paint It Black. This is off their album Aftermath, which is considered by most to be their breakthrough album. The song features Jones playing the sitar, which gave the song kind of an eerie Eastern sound that made it fit into kind of the psychedelic sound of the time. All five band members contributed to the song, but it was largely written by Mick Jagger and Keith. This is around the time when the two of them really started to take over the reins of writing most of the music. This was their first number one hit, and it's actually the first song to hit number one featuring a sitar, which would become a lot more popular soon afterwards from like uh, the Beatles and other groups. My second favorite song is the Stone song, Sympathy for the Devil. Are you sensing a theme? I like their darker, more Eastern-sounding songs. This is off their 1968 album, Beggar's Banquet, which was the last album Jones played any part in. He played the rhythm guitar on this and had some backup vocals. Um, The song was also written by Jagger and, uh, and Richards as well. And they said it was obviously a personal narrative about the actions of the devil. This led to some rumors that they were practicing Satanists, which didn't seem to be true. Um, but nothing like a little controversy to sell some records. It really it never charted all that high, but it's been featured in a lot of movies and shows, so it's had a lot of staying power. And the final song I included, I honestly didn't know this was a Stone song until I started doing this podcast, is Ruby Tuesday. I swear I thought this was a Beatles song forever. Every time I'd hear it, I thought it was the Beatles. It just sounds so much like them. It was off their album Between the Buttons, and there's a recorder part throughout the entire song that gives it such a unique sound and that was jones playing the recorder there's still some debate over who actually wrote the song jaeger has said it wasn't him but richard claims a number of sources that it was largely written by jones and then finished off with a help from richard's uh song did did reach number one on the charts so it was one of their more popular songs and on to his their opponent um The impressive four-seed Buddy Holly. So, starting this out, I knew of Buddy Holly. I'd, I'd seen a lot of stuff about him. I'd seen some of the movies he was referenced in and heard a bunch of his songs. But I didn't know a lot of his music, so I've been diving in. And it's been crazy to go back and listen to him and realize how many of his songs I actually knew. And how innovative many of them were for the time. Let's talk first and foremost about the song, Oh Boy. And I swear that song sounds like a punk rock song. Like if, you've, if you listen to any punk rock, just the way the beats are and the speed, it sounds like it could be a Blink-182 song. Um, and it, it was on his debut album, which was put out in 1957. And it was written by another artist named Norman Petty, who was part of his band. And was pretty happy to have Buddy sing it because it was so different than the way Norman could have sung it. So it was it was just really well put together. Second song is Peggy Sue. And I love the beat of this song. Again, it, it sounds like punk rock. Like, it, I know it wasn't punk rock, but it, it's power chords, super fast drum beats. It's kind of weird because this song was written by the Crickets drummer, Jerry Allison, about his girlfriend who had recently broke up with him, named Peggy Sue. Um, but it was released as just a Buddy Holly song without mentioning the rest of the Crickets. Allison and their bass player from the Crickets, Joe Malden, were playing on the song, but they didn't release it as a Cricket song. I, I don't get it. I, some of the music stuff back in the day was super weird. Allison ended up marrying Peggy Sue, so it all worked out, and this song kind of got her back. Uh, there was a quote from her saying she really liked how sweet it was that this song was about uh, her. Uh, the song got listed as number 194 on the Rolling Stones' Top 500 Songs of All Time. John Lennon, The Beach Boys, and Waylon Jennings all have remade it. Holly actually wrote a second song called Peggy Sue Got Married to celebrate Peggy Sue and Allison getting married, but it wasn't discovered until after he died. And then finally, I really struggled with the last one. I feel like a couple of his other songs, but I, I really settled on Every Day. And oddly enough, this was a B-side to Peggy Sue. It was also performed by Cricket's members, but only credited to Buddy. I think part of why I love this song is it's the theme song to the show Welcome to Wrexham. If you haven't seen it, it's uh, one with Ryan Reynolds and Rob McElhenney when they buy a Welsh soccer team and they're trying to get them promoted. And I, like I said earlier, I love anything soccer related. So this uh, one is uh, always gets kind of stuck in my head. It's just a simple song and it really pulls uh, sounds from so many other things. This was before sampling, before remixing or layering. It's just him, someone slapping their thigh, a Celesta, which is like a little bell piano that kids play with. Um, there's some bass and guitar in there, but it's muted and it's really just somebody slapping their thigh and hitting notes on the piano. And it's, uh, it's been covered and featured in about every TV show known to man, but it's just a, such a cool song. So, I was really interested to see where this matchup ended up because I think I kind of overseeded Jones and underseeded Holly. And it seems like you all agree with me because we actually have lost our first number one seed with Buddy Holly taking out Brian Jones with 88% of the vote. Wasn't even close for a four versus a one. So, uh, interesting to see that. On to our next matchup, which is our three seed, Otis Redding, versus our upstart seven seed, Aliyah. So we're going to chat about Otis Redding first, and it's interesting to hear how many songs of his have been remade, and you know the modern version better than you probably know his. Um, Respect and Hard to Handle are the ones that are somebody else's song. Similarly, he did a lot of the same thing, though. He covered Papa's Got a Brand New Bag by James Brown, My Girl by The Temptations, Stand By Me by Ben King. So I'm going to go with some of his originals only, and I'm going to start where his whole car career began with a song called these arms are mine. The song was what got him started. He wrote it back when he was the backup singer for Patty cake. And before he got a chance to do his own thing, but he performed it um, uh, on the road with uh, Patty cake and somebody heard him and it got him signed and was able to move out from behind the other singers and start his own thing. It's, it's really a beautiful song and you can really hear the emotion in his voice. It's just such an amazing debut song. Second, we're going to talk about hard to handle. The song is much better known by the black crows version, which was put out in the nineties, but I had no idea that it was a Notice Redding song. First and foremost, it actually sounds just like the black crows version more or less. And they just kind of copied and redid exactly what he did. And it's, it's. I think Otis' version is actually better just because his voice is so great. It's a funny song about a man who's so confident in his uh, sexual prowess that he's trying to convince a woman that has a boyfriend or a husband to come with him. Uh, it was uh, released as a single after his death in 1968, and it's uh, it just it's such a great song. And finally, we can't talk about Redding without Sitting on the Dock of the Bay. What a great song. It's kind of a unique one for him and has the whistling part in it, which is is him. Uh, Redding was in the process of finishing the song when he died. He had recorded the vocals three days before his plane crash. His producers and friends finished it for him, kind of following the instructions he had laid out on how it was supposed to sound, um, including kind of like waves crashing and the whistling. Um, Redding had wanted that whistling at the end and it's debated if it's him or somebody else had done it, but he had put in his notes that he wanted the whistling. His producer, like I said, added the waves throughout and kind of, a it sounds like he's actually sitting in a bay on a bayou somewhere. This was his only number one hit and was released. Like I said, soon after his death, a friend of his actually said it was about, uh, seeking out solitude in the midst of his celebrity, uh, when he had rented out a hotel room in San Francisco he, when he was on tour, he couldn't get into the hotel because he was so popular because there were so many people waiting to see him. So instead, he wrote it, rented a boathouse down by the water in the San Francisco Bay, and he wrote the song sitting on that dock watching boats go by. And it, it was more about trying to be peaceful, which is an interesting take from uh, somebody. Um, okay, so and now our most modern artist remaining on the list, Aliyah. It's kind of crazy since she was only active in the late 90s and the early 2000s, but those older artists just have so much power behind them. It's uh, it's interesting that it's almost a uh, 25-year-old artist is our most recent. The first song of hers I included on the list um, is from 1990. It was Try Again. Um, my wife said she loved Aaliyah, but um, I was telling her about the movie called Romeo Must Die, where Aaliyah played the love interest of my guy Jet Lee, and she had no idea. She had never heard of that movie. It's a bad remake of a Shakespeare, uh, Romeo and Juliet, um, but Jet Lee could do no lo- wrong in the late 90s. I feel, again, it's one of those movies that they took a song and just kind of built the movie around it. And, well, And the song was Try Again. I know I developed a bit of a crush on Aaliyah myself watching that movie, uh, and she was just great at it. The song really brought a techno sound into the mainstream, and I read that her producer, Timbaland, uh, who went on to become a pretty big producer after this, created the beat on accident. He was like playing around on the keyboard and hit the techno button, and other people in the room were like, oh, hold on. What'd you just do there? I really like it. Uh, so it... It's funny how music works out that way. This was her only number one song and was by far her biggest hit. I also really like the song Are You That Somebody. Uh, Seems like I like her songs from soundtracks the most. Uh, This song was on the Nutty Professor soundtrack, which starred Eddie Murphy as a number of different characters. Some critics were actually saying around that time that Aaliyah was becoming the queen of the movie soundtrack, which is kind of funny because that's what I mostly know her for. She was in a couple other ones too before she died. The song features the sound of a baby crying, which is pretty funny for a song about a secret romantic encounter. I guess pr- producer Timberland actually added the baby cry after she'd heard it and finished the song, so she didn't know it was going to be in there until she heard the final version, and she liked it, and it, it really makes the song. It's just a unique sound to have in an R&B song. Um, she really didn't like it... Uh, at first, But once it got recorded she did And it got her nominated for the Best R&B Vocal Performance Grammy And finally I, A song I had actually totally forgotten about Until I was looking into this But I really liked it in high school And it's called If Your Girl Only Knew um, This was the song that kind of took her to the next level She had had a few hits off her first album But this was more of a matured sound And it moved her more into the mainstream From an R&B perspective As opposed to just what sort of kind of rap this song was written by Missy Elliott and Timbaland, and they performed backup vocals on the track. It's crazy, those two are just getting started with her, um, and they went so far. The song's about a girl trying to tell a man who has a girlfriend to back off, because she'll if your girlfriend just knew what you were doing, um, it was much more mature again, because remember, if you remember, she was super young at this point in her career, um, which it, it really brought her into more of the mean steam. So this was the closest vote of our week. Aaliyah obviously had a lot of support, but just couldn't keep going being the lower seed. And Otis Redding moves forward with 56% of the vote. A really strong showing for our lowest seed and our most modern artist, but Otis Redding is just too much. So in our Elite Eight, we have uh, a three versus a four seed. I'm kind of excited to see some upsets in this bracket. I know last year, last pod we only had all the number ones reach the end and that's definitely not the case this time it's kind of wide open and proving to be that way so uh it's interesting to see how this will kind of play out so now on to our od and drugs bracket in our first matchup it's our five seed janice joplin versus our number one seed elvis we're gonna start right there with janice joplin our little underdog that's still fighting on through it's crazy because her career was just so short. Like, I, I, I know I've said that with a number of these, but she really probably had the shortest career on here. Um, she doesn't have a ton of material to dig through because of it, but what she did put out was great. Her career was like four years old, and it, again, started with the Monterey Pop Festival when she really jumped into the mainstream. So I looked into that concert a little bit, and this wasn't a regular thing. It was a one-time thing. In the year 1967. And the lineup is like pretty much our entire bracket. Otis Redding, Janis Joplin, The Who, Grateful Dead, Jimi Hendrix, Mamas and the Papas. There's other artists in there, but it's just crazy how many artists that have died, that died young, were at this festival. It was almost like it was cursed. So anyhow, uh, Janice's music. You have to include Peace of My Heart. I guess I didn't realize that this was a cover Um, it was originally recorded in 1967 by an artist named Irma Franklin. Another thing I had no idea that Aretha Franklin had an older sister who was a singer as well. Her version Emma's Irma's was nominated for the Grammy, but she lost to her sister chain of fools. Um, so it's kind of funny the whole history of this thing. Anyhow, Janice totally owns this song now and kind of took it over. Um, But most people don't think uh, of Irma when you think of this song anymore. You always think of Janis Joplin. Her screeching voice makes it so different than the way Irma sung it. Uh, She shows off exactly what she's all about and really shows kind of the pain of this song. I guess I didn't realize that a country artist, Faith Hill, also remade it and had a number one hit in the country world later on in life. I also guess I didn't realize that Janice didn't write a lot of her own hits. Um, She, she, most of her songs were covers of somebody else's stuff. Um, My second favorite song though from her is from her album Pearl, which was released after her death. And it's the song cry baby. This was originally a song by Garnet Mims and the Enchanters from 1963 the way she's able to just carry those notes at such a crazy level of volume is just, it's, it's impressive. And it's what really made Janis Joplin who she was. The song doesn't sound anything like the original. And she, that's what her thing was all about, was kind of taking some of those more uh, Motown sounding songs and making them into these rock anthems uh, that, that just kind of make the words so different. And the arrangement of the words are so different. Then finally, for a song that she did actually write, uh, it's Mercedes Benz, and this song is so incredible because it's just her. There's no music, there's no one else playing on it. It's just her voice. Supposedly, she read a poem which talked about praying to God for a Benz, and she just turned it into a song. She just started She didn't even like write it down. She just started singing it. I can't think of many other acapella songs like that from a major artist that have had that level of impact. It's a really short song. It's like a minute and 45 s- seconds, but its influence has been massive. It has been covered by a lot of artists. I was looking at a list of the covers, and there's too many to count. Across different genres, ages, and time periods, it's been parodied, copied, remixed, wrapped over, and just sang. It was recorded three days before she died, and it's the last thing she ever made. Uh, it was done in one take and required almost no mixing. It was just so perfect and well done. And now on to our opponent, the King of Rock, Elvis. So I'm actually surprised to learn that a lot of his songs are also covers. Um, If you remember, Elvis's manager said he wanted to find a white man who could sing like a black person. Well, it turned out Elvis really took that to heart with a lot of the songs that we're going to talk about. Hound Dog was first recorded by a musician named Big Mama Thornton, who a lot of people actually credit With creating rock and roll music before Elvis mainstreamed it, Elvis heard and recorded a cover of the song in 1956, but she had recorded it just a little bit before that. Um, It became his ticket to stardom. He played it closer to the late 50s, almost exactly the way Mama Thornton did. Eventually he sped it up and that song would sometimes cause riots at his show because of the, the speed. It's funny to think that were they really riots or was just this the first iteration of a mosh pit at a rock show, right? Like it just, uh, what would they think now if they saw some of the mute, the rock shows? Uh, he performed this on a show in 1958 and there was a massive uproar from, uh, all over the place because of the sexual nature of his dancing. This song was the one that made Elvis. It went all the way to number one in the U.S. and remains his best-known song. My second favorite Elvis song is Viva Las Vegas. If you know me, I love Vegas. I like to gamble. I like to go out and have some fun. And this song came out as part of his 1964 film by the same name. This was right in the middle of his movie-making career where he wasn't really making music outside of the soundtracks. It just sounds like it's a movie about a car racer trying to win some money in order to fix his car for a race in Vegas. The movie's kind of unimportant, but the song has become synonymous with the town of Las Vegas. The city itself had only been in existence for 50 years at that time, and really the casinos hadn't come around until the 30s. So it was only a couple years after that, and this song really helped drive attention to the city. And you can't really think of Elvis without thinking of Vegas And the connection really started with this song and this movie. And finally, the last song I'm going to talk about is Suspicious Minds. This song was his first number one hit after his comeback in 1968. It was released in 1969 and went right to number one. It's also kind of sad because it's about his relationship with his wife and how it's falling apart. This is also his last number one hit in the U.S., He still produced a lot of good songs, had a pretty successful country career, but none of them went to the top. It also was the first time he had recorded back in the city of Memphis, where his whole career started, and he hadn't done that since the 50s. It's also number 91 on the Rolling Stones list of the top 500 songs of all time. You can almost hear the sadness in the song, and his voice sounds so different than the other two songs that are on the list. So... With the matchup, I can hear Discord right now telling me, I told you so, Janice was never a number five seed to begin with. Well, the votes are proving it true. Uh, she won over Elvis with 76% of the vote versus 24 for Elvis, so she's moving on. And now for the battle of the gyms. We have at number three, Jim Morrison, and at number two, Jimi Hendrix. What a matchup. Two twenty-seven clubbers right out the bat, the bat here. For Jim Morrison and The Doors, I feel like I've picked their three best songs, but I'll be honest, I didn't recognize a lot of The Doors songs besides these three. I may actually say The Doors might have been a little overrated. Uh, don't, don't hate, but it's, it's kind of true. The first song I picked is Riders on the Storm. Great song. I tend to love more haunting and melancholy type of music. I heard someone say when I was reading about this that this song... Seemed to be a precursor to goth music, and I could totally see it. Um, This song was off their last album, L.A. Woman. Entered the Hot 100 the week Jim died. The song was written with a real philosophical view that people are just thrown into life and have to ride it out like uh, they're in the middle of a storm. There are sounds of waves, lightning crashes, and a muted voice that almost sounds like it's underwater. It's just a cool song. Second song is Light My Fire. This is off their debut album titled The Doors. This was their second single, but it also was the one that really cemented them as an up-and-coming band. And this is their most successful song. It was number one on the Hot 100 for three weeks and was on the chart for 23 weeks. I also guess it was written by guitar player Robbie Krieger, who was only 20 years old at the time. Ray Manzarek, who played uh, two different types of pianos. During this, he was playing with one with his right hand, one with his left, and Jim was just doing his thing with his vocals. I can only imagine what something like this would have sounded like live. And the final song, and their third one, is the song that started it all, Break On Through to the Other Side. It's interesting because this was their first single, but it never cracked the top 100 It was kind of a bust. The only time it actually charted into the top 100 was after the release of the Doors movie in 1991 with Val Kilmer playing Jim. I guess the song was written using kind of a bossa nova groove, which had been popularized around that time with the girl from Ipanema, if you remember from the last podcast. Uh, Morrison had said that the song was about breaking misconceptions and old forms to create something new. It's kind of what they were trying to do with this song was taking that sound and create something a little different and make it a psychedelic song. And now with Jimi Hendrix, um, this one's a little bit tougher for me because I love pretty much everything he has made. Pick a song on the album, Are You Experienced? And it could probably be on this list, but I'm trying to narrow it down. So I'm going to start with uh, the song Hey Joe. This was a song that had been made popular by a few other bands around the same time. Their band called The Leaves had recorded in 1965 and it charted all the way up into the top 40 of the 100. The Birds, a band which featured David Crosby, recorded a version of it as well. It didn't do as well as this one, as as The Leaves' version did. Jimmy heard it around the same time and started playing his cover of it, making it more of a rock version. And this was... um, the song that uh, Chaz Chandler, who had been the bassist for The Animals, heard Jimmy playing at a bar, and it made him want to try and promote Jimmy. So it, it really was because of this that Jimmy moved to England, formed the experience, and became who he was. So I had to pick this song. For the next song, I've included Voodoo Child with the word slight return in parentheses, and I, I had no idea that was A, the name, and B why it had Slight Return on there until I started looking into it a little bit. So if you like rock music, this song is a must to be on any list that includes Jimmy. So I didn't know the story of this song, but I like it even more after reading about it. So there's another song on his album, Electric Ladyland, called Voodoo Chile, which uh, is a 15-minute song and is just Jimmy Steve Winward from the band Traffic and Jack Cassidy from Jefferson Airplane jamming for 15 minutes. You can hear in the background like clapping and cheering. It's like it's almost a live performance. And this was because there were so many people in the studio while he was recording it. It was like his friends and everybody was in there. And the song was 100% improvised on the day of. He made it up on the spot with those two. His bandmates had left because they were annoyed. They were supposed to be there recording the album, but they were just jamming out and doing this instead. So they said, screw it. Let us know when we're ready to do this, Jimmy. The next day, Redding and Mitchell, his bandmates, came back, heard the song, and said, okay, we can do something with this, but we got to organize it a little bit more. So they took it and created a more clean version, which became Voodoo Child parentheses slight return which was a shorter version that was a return to a song they had just created they played eight uh, iterations or variations of it uh and the one that on the album was the one that they picked that they liked the way they had arranged it and then finally we can't have a conversation about jimmy and not talk about all along the watchtower this is by far his best known song his most impactful and his most masterful song in my mind It was his best charted song. It reached number 20 on the charts. And it's crazy because this song was a Bob Dylan song that had been a top 20 single in 1968. Jimmy put out his version just six months later on Electric Ladyland. The two versions are so intertwined that they almost have become the same song. Dylan is quoted as saying that he thought Hendrix's version was better than his, (laughs) so much so that after Hendrix died, Dylan changed the way he performed all along the Watchtower to sound more like Hendrix's version as a tribute to him. It was a cover of a cover, which is it's kind of a funny thing to think of because that doesn't happen. Um, the way Jimmy pulled the guitar to the forefront just amplifies the song so much and really makes it a better song. The combined version of the song is number 48 on the Rolling Stones top 500 song list, so it, it just is a great song. And well, in our first battle of 27 club members, Jimi Hendrix crushes Jim Morrison with 89% of the vote. He'll have to get through fellow 27 club member in the next round with Joplin. So a two versus a five seed. Can uh, she keep her hot streak going or is uh, her time maybe finally up? And our next and final group is the violent death group. We have number five seed Notorious B.I.G. versus number one seed Kirk Combane from Nirvana. Ugh, I could probably spend a few hours just talking about these two, song, two songs because it uh, really is, uh, as I've said before, kind of my childhood. First off, let's talk about Biggie. Um, so narrowing down my favorite Biggie songs has been tough. Um, if we were to just pick songs off his albums, that's really doesn't really limit him, but we could do uh, a list of just those. But some of my favorite things he did were features on other albums. So... Uh, a lot of those songs also were released after he had died so it's it's my podcast so i'm going to i'm going to pick what i want but just kind of prefacing that by saying there's there's a lot of different ways you could approach this my first song is all about the benjamins from puff daddy's album no way out so this song features a lot of members of biggie's junior mafia side group including him little kim the highlight of that song is the verse from biggie He takes over the song as part of it. And I read that they sampled the beat from a Jackson 5 song called It's Great to Be Here while he's rapping. Because Biggie had died before the video was recorded, they had a video of him on a TV screen while they were performing it. And the song got remixed like three times, and each one of them got a different music video. It peaked at number two on Billboard's Hot 100. I listened to that song about a million times in high school because I just really loved it. My second song is Who Shot Ya? And, man, this song is hypnotic. The subject matter is a bit violent and difficult to listen to closely, but the song had such massive implications. Supposedly, the song was written for Mary J. Blige, but her managers thought it was a song that was a little too hard for her. Biggie was going to feature on it anyhow, so they actually flipped it to him to be a Biggie song, and she actually offers a few melodies in the background on it. So uh, that's her singing in it. Biggie claimed that the song was about a young drug dealer standing up to an older drug dealer trying to steal his turf. However, it was put out just a few months after Tupac was shot, visiting Biggie in New York. And Tupac was already kind of suspicious that Biggie had known about the fact that he was going to get jumped and robbed. And after this song, Tupac felt like he was sure of it. This song was the one that kicked off the East-West rivalry and the war and ended up probably in both of their deaths. It never charted, but it was an influential track in his life and Tupac's. And finally, in my mind, you can't talk about Biggie and not talk about Mo Money Mo Problems. This song was off of his album Life After Death, which was released after his death. This one, though, is his biggest and best-known song, probably mostly because of the music video. It's Puff Daddy and Mace in these like silver, shiny jumpsuits jumping around in front of a fisheye camera and... It was recorded right after Biggie had died. So they have a video of him singing in the background. It sampled the uh Diana Ross I'm song I'm coming out, which gives it a funny poppy sound. This song went to number 1 for 2 weeks but was on the chart for over 30. It's just an iconic song from the 90s and a music video that uh pretty much everybody's seen before. And his opponent is a tough one for me. I loved Nirvana in the early 90s. I listened to a lot of their stuff. I would sit around playing video games and just listen to these songs on repeat. So I pretty much know every song off of Nevermind and In Utero by heart. Uh, it's, it's funny how music listening is now versus then. Back in the day, you'd sit around, put on an album, and listen to it from start to finish. I feel like nowadays with Spotify, you barely scratch the surface on some albums. You hear one or two songs but back then, I would listen to all of it. So I, I, I knew every single song. I don't love Smells Like Teen Spirit, and I still don't. So I'm not going to put it on the list, but everybody knows that song. Uh, so, what Nirvana songs am I going to pick? The first song that I put on the list is called Lounge Act. And this is a lesser known song. It never was released as a single. Um, this song's about a failed relationship, and Kirk. And Kurt, admit, I keep doing that. Kurt admitted this is about his ex-girlfriend and lead singer of Bikini Kill, Toby Vale. Kurt said that um, this was how he felt if he'd perform if he was a lounge singer, which is kind of funny. As the song builds, he just seems to get angry and angrier, which sounds a lot like interactions with exes. Um I just absolutely love this song. It just sounds so much like Nirvana. It's just raw, and it just builds. And it's so much about Nirvana is about not holding back your feelings and being yourself. And this song is Kurt just letting someone he used to care about know that he's angry. My second song from Nirvana is Dumb off their second album, In Utero. Kurt Cobain was never one to hold back on social commentary. And this song is is supposedly about how many dumb and happy people there are in the world. Um, He was quoted at one point saying like, so many people watch like 10 hours of TV and are happy about it, Um, (laughs) which is, is kind of funny. I think this song is almost sounds sad. It includes a cello, which gives it kind of that melancholy undertone. There are other interpretations that say this song is Kurt's perception of himself and the way he approached life. Um, if you remember, Kurt said that his idol was John Lennon. And some reviewers said that this is his most like, Beatles-esque song, and the way he used the cello and his tone. Again, never released as a single, but it did get radio play just because it was such a great song and everything Nirvana touched back then was turned to gold. And the last one is uh, a tough one, but I, this, I've, since doing this pod, I've probably listened to this song a hundred times. It's Where Did You Sleep Last Night from the MTV Unplugged album. And whew, um, this live album was recorded five months before his death. And the way he just sings this song kind of painfully foreshadows his own thoughts about suicide and his eventual death. He was really in the throes of his heroin addiction at this time. And this song is about a man who was found decapitated in a forest and uh, about the suspicion of his girlfriend or wife who killed him. It's an old African-American folk song that was sang by a man named Lead Belly. And I watched the video for it, and Kirk was uh, saying he wanted to buy Lead Belly's guitar, but uh, he couldn't afford it. Uh, Kirk's delivery of the song was just incredible. He has the most amazing voice here and his authenticity and pain took you right into what he was feeling. Uh, I still can't hear that song without getting chills. It's almost fitting that this was the last song and the last album he ever put out that it kind of ends his production. So, and now for the results, uh, Biggie's hot streak comes to an end with Kurt Cobain taking 67% of the vote and moving on to the elite eight. And in our final matchup, we have the three-seed John Lennon versus the two-seed Tupac Shakur. First off, for Kurt Cobain's idol, John Lennon. So I am going to include some Beatles songs. I think I kind of have to. Um, I'm going to do mostly solo stuff, but I think I can't not include a Beatles song. So I'm going to try and limit it to songs that John wrote, which is why I'm going to include Strawberry Fields Forever. I went and saw a Cirque du Soleil show, Uh, love with my wife when I was in Vegas a few years ago, and I'm not a huge Beatles fan, but that show was absolutely amazing. The set they did during this song was unbelievable, and it made me have a real soft spot for it. I didn't know this, but Strawberry Fields is the name of a Salvation Army home in Liverpool, and this song is a bit of a nostalgic throwback for John. Uh, he wrote it while he was on tour and he was talking about wanting to go home. It's unique because it never appeared on any of their albums. It was just a single that was released as an A-side, as a double A-side with It and Penny Lane on it. Artists do that all the time now, but on streaming services, it was just kind of a unique thing. The second song from John Lennon, it has to be Imagine, right? Like this song is uh, his song. Um, I love the message of it. Basically, it's can't we all just get along? (laughs) Oddly enough, over 200 artists have covered or reimagined the song. Bands like Madonna, Stevie Wonder, Lady Gaga, Elton John, and my favorite version of it was done by a band called A Perfect Circle. Um, The song stirred up a bit of controversy, surprise, surprise, back in the day, because it mentioned, imagine there's no religion. And Lennon, however, said that they missed the point. There's a deeper meaning here. Uh, He got the inspiration for this song from a prayer book. And his view was, what if there weren't denominations or organized religion? It's not about my God is bigger or better than yours. It's just believe what you want and be happy with how you feel. It was more pushing back on organized religion than anything, which I'm all for that. And the final song is Jealous Guy. This song wasn't actually released when Lennon was still alive. It was remade by another band called Roxy Music, and it went to the top 10 in Europe. Uh, The Lennon version was then released and charted in the US and the UK. Interestingly, Lennon started writing this song as a Beatles song in 1968 and was proposed for being included in the White Album. But the rest of the guys shot it down. They didn't want to do it. The song was written while they were on their trip to India, and John reflected on the pain that he had caused other people in his life beforehand, especially some of the women he had dated. Interestingly enough, I've been listening to some of Juice World's stuff after getting to know him doing this pod, and on the song All Girls Are the Same, he says he's a jealous boy, really feel like John Lennon. I thought I wouldn't have caught that reference if I hadn't been working on this pod and gotten to know this song. And finally, his opponent, Tupac Shakur. Uh, Tupac has so many good songs. Similar to Biggie, though. He was sampled and put on a lot of different stuff. So I'm trying to kind of pick some of my favorites. um, But we'll see where we end up. One of my favorites, though, wasn't on the radio much. And it's Two of America's Most Wanted, which featured Snoop Dogg and was on his last album that was put out while he was alive called All Eyes on Me. This is really in the middle of the East-West fight. Even in the start of the music video, there's a parody where Piggy and Putts, which are uh, <laughs> supposed to be parodies of Biggie and Puff, are talking about how they just shot Tupac and how uh, he's dead. But then he shows up in their office, and they're both like, oh, man, oh, we're so sorry. Don't kill us. Um, and he's he he doesn't, He doesn't. said, nah, we're boys. We're never going to kill you. I'm never going to kill you. Um, it wasn't subtle, though, because then his, like, bodyguards went out and killed him um the song was itself was just peak tupac it has a great beat and his timing is just perfect and flows throughout it. and it's just it's a great song second song is really his best known song about social change called changes uh he was at his best when he was talking about the struggle of young black man men and giving kind of a glimpse into the way he had to live And the beat on this song is just infectious, and his words are just so impactful. He talks about selling crack to get by, stealing food to eat, not trusting the police, and why. He talks about trying to change the way we all treat each other. It wasn't released while he was alive. It was actually put out on his greatest hit album um, as a bonus track. And it's probably his best song, at least musically. It sampled like four different songs, but the main beat was from a song called The Way It Is is by Bruce Hornsby and the range from 1986. And then finally it's Tupac's ballad to his mother called dear mama from his third album, me against the world. The song has been listed as one of the greatest rap songs of all time. It was added to the library of Congress because it was deemed culturally, historically, or aesthetically important. It's his life torn raw. He talks about the things his mother tried to do for him while she was battling being a single mother who was addicted to drugs. She wanted to get clean but didn't have the time or the patience or the effort to do it. He was a son who acted out and was looking for love and found it in gangs and dealing drugs, which didn't make it any easier for her. Shakur said he wrote the song to try and aim right at the heartstrings of his homies, which I thought was kind of an interesting way to talk about it. Mission accomplished because we're listening through the words. It's just, it's, it's a, it's a love song for a mother, which is great. Um, again, it's just a view into his life and how he still loves his mom, even though she wasn't perfect and he wasn't as well. So it's a great song. So it seems like the voters have spoken, because Tupac is moving on to the Elite Eight with 67% of the vote. In the next round, we have a massive matchup of 90 superstars between Cobain and Tupac. Who's going to make it to the final four out of those two? I have no idea. So there it is. I'm actually kind of happy to see some upsets. We have more two seeds left than one seeds. There's a three versus a four in the Elite Eight. And honestly, the eight artists that are left are massive. Which one... Any one of them could actually win it in some world or another. I feel like there's some pretty heavy favorites, but we'll see. So which group do you think has the best music? Um, I still think it's probably the first one in the health reasons, but I think I I also am a 90s guy, so I really like the violent death group. So there's a lot of great stuff in all of it. So let's hear some chatter about which one you prefer. So next week, we'll have our final eight. I've hinted at it a bit, but we're going to explore a bit of what happened to their music, their bands, their families after they died. Who owns it now? Who's How's it been used? Has it kind of faded? Is it still popular? Would they have been happy about how it's been used? Plenty to chew on there. So voting will be open until September 7th at noon Central Time. Get your votes in by then. If you like the episode, please drop a five-star. Give us a thumbs up or Subscribe. Uh, And like always, I've included a link to vote, a link for our Discord, and, and I've included the link for the songs that I talked about this week. And remember, you may not like the results, but you can't argue with the process. If you don't like the way things are going, the only way to change it is to invite more of your friends with similar musical tastes to vote. And most of all, don't forget to enjoy The Madness.